morning. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Shane. In this episode, we discuss Episodes 11 and 12 of Satoshi Kon's Paranoia Agent. We won't spoil anything from the final episode, but we will point out the last few notes of foreshadowing when relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11, rolling. Episode 11, No Entry. A middle-aged woman receives a terminal diagnosis at the hospital, despite an apparently prolonged bout of treatment. She returns home, and there faces Shonen Bat. This woman is Misai, Detective Ikari's wife, and unlike every other Bat victim, she faces her attacker with calm poise and confidence. Misae tells Shonen Bat her and Detective Ikari's story. Ikari was a man wholly dedicated to his duty, both to her and to his job. Ikari stuck by Misae while she battled her illness, though he urged her to face the reality of her diagnosis. That, of course, was before hunting Shonen Bat consumed his life, and he vowed not to return home until catching the bat. Now, Ikari is no longer a detective. Having resigned following his and Maniwa's embarrassing failure, he's taken on security work guarding a construction site. His new co-worker is Inukai, a burglar that Ikari apprehended. Inukai is reformed and, surprisingly, friendly to Ikari. Meanwhile, Misai refuses to give in to despair, and as a result, Shonen Bat is unable to take a swing at her. Later, Ikari and Inukai sling back beers and reminisce about the good old days. Ikari himself can't face the reality of modern Japan, and he falls into a nostalgia-tinged parallel reality a literally flat recreation of his imagined past. But where Ikari fails, Misai succeeds. She identifies Shonen Bat and Moromi as two expressions of the same entity, which expels the fiend from her sadly decaying home. Episode 12 Radar Man the hunt for Shonen Bat has apparently broken Detective Maniwa. To everyone else, he looks like a paranoid homeless person. But in his mind, he is Radar Man, the lone superhero who every night battles an increasingly powerful and monstrous Shonen Bat. And every night, he loses. The key to victory lies in finishing the investigation that he began in the first episode. With a little help from the otaku from episode 3's doll collection, he locates Tsukiko's father, who tells him the story of an incident from Tsukiko's childhood. When she was a little girl, Tsukiko took their family dog, Maromi, on a walk, and on that walk, Maromi somehow died. Tsukiko claimed that a kid on roller skates attacked the dog with a bat, though obviously that was a lie. Tsukiko's loving father didn't have the heart to call her out on it. 
armed with Moromi's origin story and a baseball bat of his own, Maniwa seeks out Tsukiko, who is nearly crumbling from the pressure of her day job. He urges her to face the truth, but he's foiled both by Moromi and the most gigantic permutation of shonen bat yet. While Maniwa fights the monster bat, Tsukiko flees until there's nowhere else to hide. Once cornered, Moromi opens a hole into another reality and ushers Tsukiko into it. The portal closes before Maniwa can reach her, leaving him in a world suddenly devoid of all Moromi merchandise. Shonen Bat seems to have disappeared as well, but Maniwa knows that Radar Man's final battle has only just begun. At last! Now that time itself has come to a halt, I am free to torment our listeners with an ad read. Ha! Nice try, Joseph, but you forgot one thing. The Human Instrumentality Podcast doesn't sell ad space. Think again, Ian. In my perfect world, the podcast is completely listener-supported. Why pummel them with corporate sponsors when I can use the listeners themselves? You don't mean... That's right, Ian. We've now launched a Patreon. So, if the listeners love our fine-tuned anime discourse, they can support us for one dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod? It'd better come with monthly bonus episodes. Indeed it does. And for five dollars a month, I'll even read their names at the end of the episode. It's totally optional, of course. That is, if they don't want to be frozen in time forever. Not bad, Joseph. But you forgot one thing. Oh, what's that? Nobody is going to visit any websites or sign up for any bonuses as long as time is frozen. You're trapped in this ad read. With me. Touché. You've outplayed me once again. But I'll be back. And so will this ad read. <laughs> so the, the listeners cannot see this. But I am wearing a shirt that says Medicare for All on it right now because it's laundry day. And uh, that's when I bust out the political t-shirts. Which I think is a good way to start. <laughs> Maybe for talking about no entry since... Like one of the first things we see in this episode is a, a woman not being able to pay her hospital bills. Oh my God. You were just, you were blindsiding me so, you were blindsiding me like a dented golden bat to the temple today. Mm -hmm. Because this, and this is weird for me because you and I share certain views on Medicare, who should have access to it. <clears throat> it's everybody. Uh, what it should cost them. Nothing. Yes. Literally nothing. <laughs> Right. Uh, and disagree with me in the comments. I won't watch them, read them, whatever. Uh, however, I didn't like the, the the medical social issue subtext to this arc. I didn't read into at all. Yeah, it's it's not one of the things you, it's it's because it's like the opening scene and there's so much else in this episode that you kind of like literally none of the drama would be there. It's kind of like that thing that people joke about with Breaking Bad, how like if it took place in Europe, it just would not happen. Right. <laughs> the show just wouldn't happen. 
Exactly, right? It's because the, the idea being they like they they treat his lung cancer without him needing to become a criminal. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm just making sure that I follow the critique. I agree with mm-hmm. that. I agree with that critique. My critique of bake, of Breaking Bad is I actually think Ozark is a better show. Don't hate me. Interesting. I, hot take. <laughs> I, it's, I love what's her name the 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 young woman who who plays. It's she's better at being like a counter to Jason Bateman than than the Jesse character is to to Walter. I think it's a more interesting twin character dynamic. Well, we've we've already gotten off the beaten path right. here, so let's let's circle back down to uh, to Paranoia Agent and episode eleven. No entry. No entry. So this now that we've reached the final three episodes of Paranoia Agent, I feel like you know one of one of our guests, Chingy, in the last episode sort of talked about the previous few episodes being the sort of loose amalgamation, the the most like random assortment of like the grab bag episodes uh, of paranoia agent sure and i feel like this final trio feels like a distinct block separate from the rest of the series it's the most conventional like this this trio of episodes feels like it could be the the final three to a number of different versions of paranoia agent like it the anthology version as well as like what if the show had been about Shonen Bat and like the detectives and uh, Tsukiko right. the entire time. Yeah. Like it, it is wrapping up mainly the main story and it has very little to do with a lot of the side plots that we've seen kind of expanding outward from the central drama of the show. Sure, 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 sure. I know usually we go narrative first, but for what it's worth, there, there, is, a, there is a very real world reason for why this is that, that case. Mm-hmm. Go for uh, it. Um, yeah. So I had, since we discussed it in our first Paranoia Agent episode with Andrew Osmond, I got the Paranoia Agent Blu-ray, which contains commentary mm-hmm. on the last three episodes. Only the last three. R- right. And so I, I, I think I've made sort of like a boo-boo here. I delayed on watching the commentary because I wanted to, to get... I wanted to like understand those ideas on their own. And I thought, Oh, they're just going to talk about the ending. That's mm-hmm. not really how the paranoia agent commentary works. It's them talking over the last three episodes about the entire show. Gotcha. So I've gained a little insight into things we didn't understand before. Perhaps we should save a number of those for the finale, but if there's a, a relevant thing you want to bring up here, then sure, there is there is a there, there is a relevant thing I wanted to bring up here, and that is that um so basically when they when they made the show, they only plotted up to megahertz. Uh huh. That was the, uh-huh. that was the end of of the outline of the original, yes. and they had a and they had like a document with Cone's idea for an ending. And I guess they they hemmed very close to his original idea for both the first half and the ending, right? But basically, they went immediately from storyboarding those first episodes to planning the last three and executing on the last three, right? Mm -hmm. And much of the staff from specifically the first two episodes returned to – they just went from the beginning – to the end and so like the block of episodes that we did with chingy where we talked about like these sort of weird offbeat ones were finished last and they they sort of let the rest of the staff go do that while con and the screenwriter and the producer mr toyota like focused on the end 
Interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like you could do this TV show as a 10 episode block instead. Like if you imagine like without happy family planning, without et cetera, and without Mela Maromi. Yeah. Mela Maromi. Yeah. You could almost do it without those, those three. Although I think that all three of them bring something interesting to the table that it's not, it would never be worth cutting them in my mind, but there is a, a hypothetical tighter version of the story where immediately following the, you know, the dissolution of the paranoia agent pair and the death of Kozika, you jump ahead in time to sort of the aftermath of that investigation falling apart. Right. Exactly. This is, this is the, um, you could recut it as like with the true detective time jump. Yes, I think that's a, a a very a good point of comparison. Sure, because definitely Maniwa in in this final trio of episodes is giving off some uh, some Russ Cole after the fall yeah kind of vibes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, he picks up the the bat from Tsukiko's dad's bucket and just says, "I have what you might call a well developed negative faculty." <laughs> Zing turns into the truth sword. <laughs> Stupid. So you know we we begin no entry with a woman who we've seen in the opening sequences many times, right? but have yet to actually be properly introduced to. And we actually aren't even properly introduced to her as in like given her name until the final episode. But right. I feel like for ease of conversation, we just need to refer to her as Misai now. Yeah. Because otherwise like, what are we doing here? What are we doing? It, it's, it's, it's true. It's so it's actually sort of funny. That is one of the only things about this episode that they, that Khan brought up while watching this episode, but he did bring up that, sh- that she's in the intro and she's the last character from the intro revealed. And I, there's mm-hmm. actually, I guess quite a gap. I haven't gone back and tracked, but I think, I think there is that three episode gap before you're really introduced to a new character. Maybe not. I think it's even of, longer. I think it's, Hirokawa's daughter, whose name escapes me, is the the last character that's introduced to us, and that's episode seven, six, six, six. It's six. Yeah, yeah. fear of a direct hit. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so th- there was like a lot of, I guess, as the episodes were airing, there was a lot of forum chatter about like who's the old woman, right? Like we haven't seen her even in the background at at mm-hmm. all. I, so I guess like the reveal of her was kind of like a big deal to the the fans of the show as the show was coming out but uh Misaya was part of the part of the 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 plot from its original conception yes which makes us i think begs the question why do we not get any of her until this episode you know because you know as as you will have heard in the the preamble to this this podcast this is Detective Ikari's wife, right. who we've sort has been alluded to. We we know that he has has a family, specifically from a man's path, but it has largely been absent from what we've seen of the character. We've never seen him go home. We've never seen the two of them interact. We don't even see them interact in this episode. Yeah, this is really our first look into this character's existence at all. So, what do you think it it means to the show that we we have such a delayed introduction both to Miss Ae herself and to uh, Ikari's home life such as it is well when so when we interpret the the earlier part of the show 
is that it's it's sort of like a chess game between the detectives and Shonen Bat mm-hmm. in a way, right? And and Shonen Bat trounces them, wins very quite easily, yeah, devastates them, right? And so I think it it does dramatically behoove the show for there to be someone to stand up to to Shonen Bat in a way that isn't like, ooh, I'm a spoopy ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Not not as a bit, but as like an actual dramatic moment. Sure. Even though I think like they do play Shonen Bat in in this episode fairly comically. It's an interesting blend, I would say. I right. think there's it it's introducing much more terrifying aspects of the character in a comedic tone. Right. Because we, you know, as Misae is leaving the doctor's office and going home, she overhears all of this chatter from other people who are talking about Shonen Bat. And since the end of the investigation, as we've discussed in the previous trio of episodes, the public perception of Shonen Bat has gone completely haywire. Right. You know, he's a gigantic man. His face is mutilated, his yada, yada, yada. And so when we first see Shonen Bat enter the Ikari household, and confront Misae, uh, he appears as he always has, you know, the teenage boy, normal size, etc. And as the conversation goes on, he becomes, you know, you put it in your notes that he bros- blows up to like brawly size. Right. You know? <laughs> I'm in a Dragon Ball Z movie villain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, right. It, and I think that is sort of, you know, meant, meant to undercut the character, but it also like, that pays off, right? That yeah. foreshadows... Like I call him Kaiju Shonen Bat in in mm-hmm. episode in episode twelve or like True Bat Boy Shonen Bat. Yeah, yeah. We can we can get to that. So like I do think it is important to watch like how he gets his his like transformation into like his like full evil self is yeah. is interesting, right? But as for what is they trying? I don't know what, what necessarily they're trying to say about Akari just yet. I think we're going to know more about that in the last episode, right? Yeah, yeah. But in terms of no no entry, I think it is instructive to to talk about like the one of the meta texts that it's in conversation with, and that might be instructional for us, like figuring out what to make of uh, Misae and Shonen Bat, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so as as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure some listeners have have pointed out, the name "No Entry" of the episode is basically a direct reference to existentialist philosopher Jean Paul Sartre's play "No Exit." You don't need to have read "No Exit." The premise is pretty simple, and um, even if you've never read or seen a, a staged or televised version of "No Exit," you've heard a line of dialogue from from "No Exit." Um, almost certainly yeah yeah. so no exits the the play where the the famous line is hell is other people Mm -hmm. right and and for what it's worth the the premise to no exit is that it's three people are are have died at the start of the play and they're in hell so you you start the play it's like these people are dead they're in hell they're going to be tortured for all eternity right and and sort of the premise is it's just them stuck in a room talking and eventually they're all such unpleasant people that by the end they realize that like this is their torture is right. just to be you only have these other assholes to talk to for the rest of eternity like that's your punishment hell is other people and, and it's specifically the the way in which those characters grind against each other is that they're all sort of uniquely situated to torture each other it's not just three randos it's three people who would be hell to each other correct you know 
And yeah, I think like we, you don't even necessarily need to have heard hell as other people, the line to have had some sort of interaction with like a bottle episode of television, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, a movie that the two of us have talked shit about in text messages, the lighthouse or right. Yeah. <laughs> a, a ve another very no exit kind of, kind of fucking mm -hmm. piece of storytelling. No exit has been mimicked and, and parodied and reinterpreted 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 <laughs> many many times since it was written however um if you've seen the good place like the good place draws a, a decent portion of its premise directly from no exit so what do we make of no no entry then so here's right so here's what i sort of find interesting is it's just by flipping it from entry to exit cons like already setting up the the episode to be like a riff a rebuttal of the idea that hell is other people. Yes, it is. It, it, cause he's taking the, the essential format, which is that it's Misai and Shonen bat stuck in a room, right? Having a conversation instead of the, you know, this investigation, this, you know, police interrogation kind of setup that we've had in all of the previous confrontations with Shonen bat, right. Or the, the more violent, you know, macho confrontations that Maniwa will have in the next two episodes. Mm -hmm. It is a, it is a one-sided conversation. It's essentially a monologue. Uh, it's a soliloquy. Is it a soliloquy if you're talking to another person? Uh, poets get in the chat and correct me. Um, uh, I think it's technically not, but go on. Yeah. So clearly the, the, the format of the play is front of mind here in that it is meant to evoke this, two characters stuck in a room hashing something out kind of setup, but you're right. Changing it from entry, changing it from exit to entry seems like a pretty specific choice. Right. What I interpreted is that hell may be other people, but that still, that still gives us the ability to block a demon like sure. Shonen bat from the door, like being with other people may be suffering on some level, right. but that does not mean that we can allow this other thing to come in and destroy our social relations, sure. which to me seems to be a version of the central argument that Misae is making to Shonen Bat over the course of this episode. Sure. I think it's interesting to note that Misae is, is let's just go down the binary, right? Misae is a person who's in a lot of ways confined to a room while she's alone, mm -hmm. while she's alive alone right yes she's yeah. she's in a purgatory in some ways similar to but in some ways a direct opposite of the purgatory in uh no exit right right and and her roommate her interlocutor is the demon you know shown in bat right and in and in this play it's the living person who is tormented and is like beset by by grief and isolation who torments like like the demonic entity Right. Right. This yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you get the sense that like, like her situation is shown in bats, like ultimate adversity. And, and, and what is that? Right. In, in the last season, we talked a lot about, we talked somewhat about existentialist philosophy, go back mm -hmm. to the operation Duroxy episode on, uh, in our Evangelion series to hear me go like all out on Soren Kierkegaard. Right. right. Um, <laughs> and like, Sartre read Kierkegaard. Sartre, I'm not certain, would call himself an existentialist. He, like, 
he took the term on and then rejected it. Yeah, yeah. He had different phases to his intellectual career and, you know, became surprisingly, you know, it's funny how this cliche keeps proving itself to not be true, became more of a leftist as his life went on. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, was much more into direct action and, and sort of considered his earlier existential work to be a bit of a sham in his later life. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I do think like existentialism is... It, it's typically considered to be a bit of a young man's game. You know, it's, it's easy to be really into that kind of stuff. And it, it probably has its most important impact on one's life when you're a teenager and you really feel like there is no meaning to anything. You're kind of lost in the world. That's when these dudes, these French, you know, dudes in all black can really sell you something important. I think. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean the, the, the damning critique of existentialism, I think has always been, what about what about society what about like being in society yeah right which i think that's part of like con's critique too that some of what he's saying is here is like this is a person who's redeemed from purgatory by her relationships to other people yeah. even if they aren't even if they aren't there and it's gonna foreshadow you know toward the end of the series that like maybe people will be redeemed not through self-interrogation, not like Evangelion where it's like an interpretive process of yourself, but through the, the like something that only another person can offer you. Right. Right. So, so the like, healing of some sort of social relationship instead. Right. I, so I think this is, she exists here so that before the finale, Colin can like give you his argument against this kind of hyper individualistic mindset. Mm -hmm. Right. That said, you know, Minase is kind of like an existentialist hero. She's, she sort of like does the thing where she exists transparently in a power outside of herself. And in typically Sartrean fashion, you know, maybe not the, the best role model for women, even though she's a quote unquote strong female character, not in a Xeno warrior princess way. There's like, I still have some problems with yeah. like this. So let, let's get into that. Well, yeah, I think all of this stuff is tightly woven into itself. Like why we haven't seen her for this long, right. what that means, why it is her, like, obviously it's a hammer blow of an episode because it's the first time that we ever see Shonen Bat rejected and defeated mm -hmm. by one person who could have become one of his victims. Right. And I think that it's, it's hard to tell exactly whether this is a critique, whether it's self-aware, whether it's uh, sort of a bit of a cliche within the genre or a, a problem of depiction of women in the show. But Misai's character is in large part defined by her relationship to Detective Ikari, now security guard Ikari. Mm -hmm. And their relationship is defined in large part by Ikari's absence from the home. Right. You know, and I, I think that in one way you could you could read it as the fact that we have not seen her for so long is kind of damning to Ik Ikari's character. It suggests that, you know, we've been following this guy for the three quarters of a TV show and we've never seen his wife. He's barely brought her up. And it's because he's constantly out of the house for one reason or another. He's pursuing this case endlessly. And I think to delay the introduction of what he is running away from is, is to sort of reveal that he has been running away from something. Right. You know, and that makes it very difficult to square exactly what we mean by calling Misai a strong female character, because 
it's been brought up by a few of our guests, uh, particularly Andrew Osmond mentioned this, that this is sort of, you know, she is th- maybe the quote unquote strongest character in the show. Um, a, a standout character, certainly. Yeah. Like in, in this show and also like in Khan's oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I've, we've talked in this series. I've talked in this series a lot, maybe about how Khan sort of like has his, his tricks and he likes to play them again. Right. I don't, I don't remember a ton of paprika, but I don't, we've never seen a character like this in his oeuvre before. And I don't know if we're going to get another one. We will not. I, I can assure you that this character is pretty singular, mm-hmm. but maybe we should interrogate exactly what we mean by strong and where that strength comes from. Because, you know, right from the jump, we understand that she's ill. She's been ill for most of her life. She hasn't, you know, she's unable to bear children. What And so what makes her a strong character is her resilience in the face of adversity and hardship, basically. Right. I think it's it's very interesting and kind of, it's worth chewing over, like, the fact that Shonen Bad appears so quickly to me speaks to the fact that she is uh, her character is inches away from despair at all times, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that Shonen Bat can appear and hang out means that in some, in some way the escape and the despair and the giving into despair as a means of escape uh, that Shonen Bat represents hangs as a possibility upon her life at all times, you know? Right. And her strength, as shown through the show, as defined by the show, comes in her ability to fight that off, to say, no, I am going to remain hopeful. I'm going to remain in belief that, you know, my suffering is towards a greater purpose. And I will not let down my husband, Ikari, by giving into despair. And that is where things get kind of tricky for me to uh to sort out the the degree to which i can endorse her strength as a character you know what i mean yes more existentialist tropes right she literally and figuratively has like a sickness unto death Mm -hmm. right and and that's not only like her illness but it's like the angst right but she she also in a way i interpret this as I think there's also like a a chaos magic interpretation of this story. Like one way to interpret this episode is that she's sort of indulging her sickness unto death purposefully in order to lure Shonen Bat into her room where she says, like, sit down, young man. I'm going to teach you something. Right. Yeah. She's she's indulged the darkness to trap the entity in her like ritual space in order to try and, and, and harm it. Right. Mm-hmm. And we see something similar with the way that Maniwa acts in the next episode. Exactly. And has been acted in megahertz as well, uh, mm-hmm. which we can we, get to, but I'd like you to continue on this. On this yeah. Path. We talked about how like in megahertz, he may be sort of doing the same thing with flipping the radio dial, right? Like he's trying to make himself into a shonen bat vacuum, 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 victim to trap the monster. Right. Mm-hmm. But she's more, she, she's more insightful than, than, Maniwa is initially like she's able to interpret very well that that Shonen Bat has this like intimate link to Maromi, yep. right? Like the TV falls over and she's like, "You're no different than that fucking dog. You're one right. and the same." And it's like we've telegraphed this a lot, but it's like a big reveal, right? So all of that is like strong, I think that that she she very easily makes the existentialist hero leap to like 
I place my faith transparently outside of myself. And I play and so I'm invincible to something like you. But I place it in my relationship to my husband. Right. Which is I would say I would say Sartre would call that bad faith, actually. Also her sickness unto death and like her estrangement from her husband come in large part to her like inability to have children, right? Right. Which is very traditional, like we're having this issue with Roe v. Wade as we're as we're recording this episode. It's looking like it's going to be struck down. And like this is, I think, still a problem we face in our country to this to this day is like to to what extent is the value of someone with a uterus wound up in bound up in their ability to have children? I, like, it's not good. That's also like a bad faith way to envision women. Right. Like. The, the particular strength that Musayi embodies in this episode is one of a, like, dedicated, long-suffering, but enduring wife. Right. Who is putting up with her husband's necessary absence as the breadwinner in order to kind of keep the family together. Mm-hmm. Which is a very, like socially conservative type of strength in its own way. It's very, Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Like she is preserving despite all of the hardships that are presented to her. And I think this is ultimately like the correct move for this character. It's, it is the right thing to do is to not give into despair. And it is just sort of the situation that these characters find themselves in because of the lives that they lead. Like, I think it's okay to have two characters who are from a socially conservative milieu in this show, that's that's fine. Like I I don't I don't think it's like evil to do that, but it's just worth noting that uh, to take this character as the emblem of all strength in the show lets in requires you to buy into a bunch of other stuff. You know, right? Yeah, it, there definitely is like a post-war reconstruction nostalgia here. Yes. And, and we mean that in the Japanese sense, not the post-war reconstruction American sense, which is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> Correct. Thank you for for helping me like peel that onion. But yeah, it, it like it I, I think it's worth noting that like, you know, Khan for being the the person who cared about homelessness, the person who seems to be like more in in tune with the the difficult nature of of being an out gay person in modern society in Japan specifically mm-hmm. for him having like all these like social insights that other creators like Hideki Yano don't seem to exhibit. Right. He, he does seem to sort of like in endorse maybe not only this, but he also does endorse kind of like a weird nuclear family suburban bliss mm-hmm. in, in, in this. While also showing that it is it is a flawed and broken relationship. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know exactly if he comes down on saying, like, even in a case where this relationship is clearly not perfect, you should just suffer through it. But rather that, like, suffering through it has given this character a particular kind of grit that Shonen Bad is not able to crack, mm-hmm. you know? And maybe it's it would be a good idea to bring in Ikari himself and talk about the way that he's depicted in this episode. Yep. Because I think there's there's some good visual irony that even Misai's idea of her husband is not entirely the case, you know? 
so Ikari, after the end of the investigation, has been fired. He's ended up as a security yeah, security officer. Security officer? What am I saying? Like, what, what is he's the a, word? He's a, uh, <laughs> security, security guard. guard. <laughs> Sorry. He's, he's, he's a um, night, night watchman, but in, in, in the during the day. Yeah. And so he's been severely humbled. He's working multiple shifts. He's never home. He's running from construction site to construction site. And there's a pretty like pointed moment where, you know, Misai is saying like the two of us swore to only like he, that I was all that he would ever need, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that we, we'd be dedicated to each other and no one else while Ikari sort of like leers at a woman that's passing by and like, yeah, yeah. Like that's, I think that's a kind of like a bit of a wink on, on Cone's part that like, sure, I'm going to prop up this character as being like having some knowledge that is very necessary to defeat Shonen Bat. And she comes by that knowledge because of the particular uh, ideals that she represents. But even those are built on some faulty premises, you know? Right. Like this guy is not the perfect husband sort of self-evidently, you know? Yeah. I mean, he puts her in a bad position. Mm -hmm. He's not, he's not the perfect anything really. He's, he's a very flawed character. Sure. Does he, does he, does he take, does he take a look at some butt cheek? Maybe. I mean, this is before, uh, this is in, in an age before athleisure is everywhere. (laughs) You know, I, I, I think maybe it's, you know, I, I wonder how Mr. Akari would, would fare in, in my neighborhood with all the, the, the skin tight yoga pants everywhere. <laughs> but you know what? We're in, we're in the post thirst trap society now. Let's not, let's not hate on him too, too much. He's I don't not think cat it, calling. Yeah. He's, he, it's not like something that is worthy of hating on him for, but I think it is a, re- a revealing moment in the director's gaze to show him being fallible and, you know, sort of just a regular dude at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, he's not the ideal husband. He's just this guy who is kind of a failure, self-described loser in this episode, you know? Which is funny because I actually think this is like the most humanizing episode for him. Like Absolutely. His cause his B plot with so the B plot is like he meets uh, Inukai, the first thief he arrested. Or a, a thief that he arrested a long, long time ago. I don't know if it's specified as first in the, the subtitle version hmm, that I watched. Maybe, it's, but... maybe it is, and it's, I, I'd have to double check. I wrote down first, but maybe that's a mistake on my part. Either way, an old person that he caught, which is no mean feat, because as we talked about in a previous episode, Japan's penal system. Err, uh, rough, <laughs> right? But... Now that they're both security guards, he's able to interface with Inukai, not like outside of these weird social bounds of like, I am cop, you are robber. It's right. Like, now we're both just like, both just fucking dudes. Yeah. Right. And and he gets to have, he gets to have like a really authentic, even though you don't get a lot of it, he gets to have this really like authentic, reflective relationship with Inukai that he doesn't have with Hirokawa or Maniwa or anyone else that he's like gone out to the bar with. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting that he has part of it is I think he needed to be humbled in order to have a eye to eye conversation with Inukai versus the situation that he has with Hirokawa, who I think he looks down upon with a certain degree of disdain in that episode Mm -hmm. when they finally get to the bar. 
or he's he's so wrapped up in the investigation that he's unable to see Hirokawa for who he is right. in some way. Whereas here, now that he he has no fundamental drive in his life, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's been reduced to, you know, well, maybe that's not true because he is doing this all to take care of his wife. You know, he is working three shifts. He is, you know, working hard because he does want to, you know, he, he goes out of his way to sing his wife's praises, me say his praises over the course of the episode. And I think that the next few episodes will do a bit of digging into maybe how that's not so legitimate on his part, but at least as he conceives it, he is working himself to the bone for the two of them and not just for himself. You know, right. here, it, yeah, his relationship to Inukai, one, I, I just love yet another, like, cone character actor showing up. Yeah. This, this weird little robber dude with, like, the, the pink nose and all of that. He's just, like, such a cameo. Like, right. it would be some name, like, name actor coming in just for one episode kind of thing. The funny thing is they do kind of fall into this realization that, like, both of them are men out of time. Both of them come from an era where cops were cops and robbers were robbers. And there was, there was no gray area. It's just a black and white two dimensional universe, which is obviously I'm, I'm making a pointed reference there, but sure. I feel like maybe I'm, I'm dr- bringing in a bit too much stuff here. No, I don't think you're bringing it too. I think it's, I think it's correct. It, I think it's sort of funny that here's the old men who feel out of time who were like, in a sense, mortal enemies, but also like playmates, right? You said cops and robbers. It's a yeah. game people play, right? And right. everyone's just players in it, right? And so, like they, they, what brings them together outside the confines of of that game is not only that game being ended, but also like their mutual realization that there's a new game being played with the kids. Like these kids, they're doing the world is not the way it was, man. Mm-hmm. Neither of them seem to have like a lot of insight into why that is the way it is. Like it's this is which very I think much, is telling, yeah, right. It does sort of seem like they're about to start the Republican Party. <laughs> um, but they're sweet old guys. Just right. Re- just two regular dudes. And then like just, they're just normal men <laughs> in, in, in a series populated by such eccentric people. That is refreshing. Like, right. Inukai's a character actor, like looking fucking dude with his like constant pink nose. But out of all like the little one-off characters we've seen, he just seems the most like just trying to make a living, man. I don't yeah. steal no more. He he seems like genuinely reformed. Uh, right. And like at peace with his station in the world in a way that Ikari is not yet, you know? Right. And because he's, he's kind of shown to be a bit bumbling and not quite good at the job. And there, there's a lot of undercutting of Misai's monologue about like how great he is by showing how much of a putz he is at being a security guard. Or maybe it's saying, maybe it's saying more like how much of a putz he is or like that he, that he looks at butts or whatever. Maybe like that doesn't matter. Like, I think maybe right. what it's more saying is like, is that, is that like, there's a deeper nobility to, right. to what he's doing. Yeah. Like the nobility is that he's doing what he's, what he's doing for a good reason with a full hearted effort. Yeah. Right. And, and not, not letting what's befallen him totally wreck him. And in that way, I think there is a nice poetry there. You know, it would be more Mm -hmm. cliche to see him going full rust coal, drinking and cutting out figurines with a hunting knife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like Marty Hart was still a cop after 
the the break in True Detective. Right. You know, so right. the, he Ikaria remains the, the Marty Hart. And I think what this show does better than True Detective is maybe point to how that there's a flaw there too. Mm-hmm. But let's let's kind of bounce. There's a few other things I'd like to touch on here uh, before we start bringing in the ending of this episode and necessarily the the next one. Yeah. One, I think it's really cool how Shonen Bat is mostly shown as a shadow. Yes. In this episode. Yeah. You know the 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 primary shot that we keep returning to over and over and over again is Misai shown from outside of the apartment with the door open. And the door has slid so that Shonen Bad is only seen through the paper door as a shadow. So he is only a projection. He is not a thing unto himself. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is the case even as he grows into his, you know, like big boy brawly version. He's still just a shadow. And his bat is the same size. And I think that that is a, yeah, a, a that's nice fun. little touch of like. Oh, you know, you can you can get as brawlic as you want, but you're still just swinging around this dinky little baseball bat, you know, and you're whiffing. You can't hit anything. It's got shades of um, have you ever played No More Heroes? No, I haven't. Are you aware of No More Heroes? Yes. OK, so I'll do real quick for for listeners who don't know. No More Heroes is they finally released the third one, I think, recently. It was a, a Nintendo series by this auteur uh suda 51 is this guy goes by anyway but basically it's um what's the easiest way to think about it it's grand theft auto but you've got a lightsaber and you like (laughs) your main character is is johnny knoxville basically like he's like anime johnny knoxville and what he does is like to charge to charge his laser sword You need to swing the controller like you're trying to jack off. It's the most fucking funny thing in the world. Um, but like I played No More Heroes and it was a fun game. I'm glad they're I'm glad they're doing more, but it's clearly getting it's it's poking holes in like the frag the fragility of, of violent masculinity. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, yeah, like yeah. I think him getting bigger, but the bat staying the same size is going for like a similar energy. Absolutely. Cause like, I, I, you know, I think this is a, it is a, a well-intentioned undercutting of like defeating the big monster by getting a bigger sword, you know, like, I think that maybe by 2022, the idea of, you know, the long suffering wife taking out the monster by having a conversation and like rededicating herself to her husband is seems a bit insufficient, but in like 2004, that's pretty, that's pretty daring stuff. Like, yeah. I, I don't yeah. want to like shit on Satoshi Kone from the future for his attempts to do something that is like legitimately challenging and uh, subversive for the medium for its time. And sophisticated storytelling. Like the dialogue is, here yes. is, this is like a great teleplay script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, what I will say is I think that it maybe leans a bit too hard on some anime cliches by the very end. Like when Misae is delivering the sort of like knockout punch of like, you're not human. You'll never understand it. Like humans will, were always built to survive and, and mm-hmm. like endure hardship and you're just a, a shadow, etc. We go into this kind of like the Ray copycat sequence yeah. I don't understand exactly what that's supposed to do except signify intensity, 
Right. I know that this is like a visual trope that they're drawing on from, I think, Kabuki. But like, I am not enough of a cultural scholar of like all Japanese pop culture like that far back to be able to tell you what exactly it does signify. But I know that it is drawing from a tradition. Mm-hmm. And so I think what were the race sequences and like in, in bring up Ava here, you do sort of like bring up a point that like this is in some ways one of the more Evangelion episodes of the show. This is like the angel interrogation episode. Yes, except it's one where the pilot wins instead of getting right They're They're the ones not being interrogated. It's the it's the pilot that it's, it's interrogating the angel. Right. Essentially. Cor- correct. I, I, I see a lot of sort of like maybe like Ava clapbacks in these last three tiny yeah. ones, but I think they're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably the loudest. Yeah. Yeah. Structurally, it is. It is the most similar and also the most pointed reversal of the of the Ava angel interrogation dynamic. If I'm going to be charitable, I would say the the vision of like Misai replicating and, and appearing in multitude forms with multiple voices layering over them is to sort of suggest like that she's speaking for all of humanity Mm -hmm. and not just for herself in refuting shonen bat it just feels like a bit sloppy and a bit maybe overdone for what i think would have worked either way yeah i think that's probably true i i also wonder if it was just a gap in the storyboards like Going back earlier, but they um the the production for Paranoia Agent was so rushed mm-hmm. that they didn't make a lot of edits by the end in the animating sequences. They basically edited to the storyboards. And for a few episodes, they don't mention this one, they they mentioned Mela Moromi, but there were a few episodes where the storyboards wound up being a little short. Uh-huh. And so they they felt the need to like go in and get it to the 22 minutes for broadcast, right? I, I I sort of wonder if maybe there was a little bit of that in this sequence. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a filler. It's like doing sort of the the motions to get a lot out of a very little amount of actual animation. You know? Right. Give me. Can you give me 30 more seconds at the end? They're like, yeah. Yeah, we can, we will figure out 30 more seconds of monologue. We've got the cells. We'll make it happen, right? That That's what I think is going on. I don't know. There's a, yeah, a few other things there. Like when she does defeat Shonen Bat, when he vanishes after she makes the connection between people escaping into Moromi and people escaping into Shonen Bat in mm-hmm. one way or another, which, yeah, as you said, we've been sort of foreshadowing the whole time. I feel like if you're, uh, even if first viewer of the show, like, you can probably pick up what what's going on here for sure. Uh, this will not be like a, a huge revelation to you after she delivers that line, the walls of her apartment fall away. And she's suddenly sitting in a, uh, a field where there's like a flock of birds flying over her that are clearly like painted to be there and are not moving. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a, an interesting it's a climactic moment. Cause like she's defeated the enemy, but where is she? You know, like what does it mean for her to have arrived in this sort of like idyllic painted world where there's like a rainbow etched over her? Is this not an escape into its own fantasy world in the way that say Kozuka escaped into his fantasy world or, or that 
at the end of the same episode, Akari disappears into a, an actual 2D world. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my my basic interpretation is that is that it's meant to evoke the theater. Yes. I yeah, think yeah. it's it's meant to be evocative of a big reveal at the end of, let's say, a small production of No Exit, where you've mm-hmm. changed the ending. So they get out of hell, right? Like, yeah, yeah. oh, the black box theater walls all fall away. And behind there, we've got a little painting of of like, oh, this is like a nice, not super duper Christian-y heaven, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a bit, it's a, maybe a bit ham-fisted, right? But I, I think it's meant to ev- evoke the theatrical tradition, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, and the other thing is, is like we know at the end of the episode that her, even though she's made the decision that she's going to get this dangerous procedure, that it, it, she's in severe cardiac distress at the end of the episode, is she not? Yeah, clearly. Like she's, yeah. It's it, it is a it's a dire situation that she's in right. for the entire episode, and it's interesting that like you know Maniwa shows up at the very end, obviously looking quite different than when we last saw him. Mm-hmm. And the house is in ruins, you know, right. Undercutting or perhaps giving context to her resilience and her, uh, desire to have, to maintain this household for her husband. It has fallen apart. It is in disarray. The household is not secure, you know, like it, it has been damaged by what Shonen Bat has done both to Akari. And even if he was not able to pull off taking her as well, right. The damage is done. He's damaged their relationship anyway. Yes. Yes. He's, he's, he's separated them in, mm-hmm. in a way. And even like the writer Mur- Murakami said that like th- this episode and that scene in particular is about the separation of a marriage. Yes. Yeah. To him. So, I mean, yeah, grim, grim end. Before we get to I- Ikari's 2D world, this episode returns to a, a, a motif that I've tried to point out every time it's happened. And I may have missed a few of it, which is construction. Mm. It's one of the first sounds we hear on this TV show is the sound of construction happening in the city. Like we have that opening shot of like the, the skyscraper, but with like construction sounds around it. And in a very similar sort of episode about like masculinity and taking care of one's family and all of that uh, in a man's path. There's the constant images of the house being built. And I've, I've, I'm sure there are other little passing things of construction sites, but I think it's, it is not accidental that Akari is working as a security guard at construction sites. It's interesting that like the, that construction site is a place where he sort of finds a little bit of redemption, mm-hmm. but the constructed Hirakawa house falls apart. I like, I wonder if sort of, we were talking about like how, how one of Misaya's strengths is resilience. Right. Yeah. And I, I think like he's, I think maybe Colin's trying to make an underline, a, uh, a connection between resilience and constructing or reconstructing. Reconstruction is, I think the, the key word for reasons we'll get into mainly in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we, I just wanted to make a note of that. We also have a, a pretty conspicuous moment of uh, Inukai and Ikari taking out the trash, which is right. something I hadn't considered, but actually happens like a, a surprising amount in yeah. this show. Like we have the, the old woman, uh, the, the homeless woman who's, you know, 
rifling through the trash multiple times throughout the series. And we also have in, in double lips, the, the returning to the trash. He returned over like, and over again. Yeah. 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 And I think that, Go, you know, go for it. I, th- I feel like you know where I'm going with this. So, well, I was just going to say this is sort of Cone's one of his big visual motifs, right? Like he's mm. he started as a background artist. The thing he drew for Akira is clutter. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And and in a weird way, I think visually paranoid agent is remarkably not cluttered for what he's done so far. And so maybe in a weird way, I interpret this as like sort of his his referendum on his earlier part of his career, right? Like I'm going to I'm going to get everything together yeah i i also think it's like which characters are the ones that are taking out the trash what does returning to the trash heap symbolize for harumi and slash maria mm-hmm. you know it's like she's trying to throw all of this stuff away she's trying to stuff it into bags and throw it into the trash and like get it out of her life but it right. keeps coming back you know right Sukiko is trying to run away from the old woman rifling through the trash rifling through the stuff that gets repressed and thrown away mm-hmm. you know and it's after ikari and inukai throw away the trash that they go to the bar and right. they're re- in a certain way escaping from the refuse it's i think it, it's a big thing about repression it's a big thing about like the type of stuff that we try to excise from ourselves and our minds and and stuff into a corner Longtime listeners will and perhaps Thomas Pinchon fans will note that this is a recurring motive in Gravity's Rainbow as well. Is <laughs> is trash and excrement in particular? As oh like god, are we talking s- about the excrement in Gravity's Rainbow now? I don't want to talk about it, but it's it's you know the it's a thing that is linked to I think a similar meaning in Paranoia Agent, which is like what we attempt to flush out, what we attempt to get out of our lives, and what that says about the selfhood that we're trying to construct, you know, this, this, we talked about it in the, in megahertz with like Monty was picture perfect, clean Ikea apartment versus the, the den of wires and cables and, you know, feedback and electronics that houses who he actually is inside. Sure. I think there's also like an exist, an existentialist reading of that too. And that is like, if you, if you think about like garbage, Garbage is a thing that's used. Having been used implies the past, right? And like uh, one yeah. of one of the one of the central like ideas in almost all existentialist thought is the idea that like the human experience is is time bound and that it is time bound it shows in everything, right? Yeah. And like it wasn't Sartre, it was Heidegger who wrote Being in Time, mm-hmm. right? But I think what we're getting at here is if if Khan is kind of trying to like messy up a tidy existentialist reading of of like this story i think maybe what he's saying is that the idea that the past is past is not true not like, true you're yes not the true past you're lives in you constantly yeah. right you're you're also in in the past right mm-hmm. um and in that way i guess construction is is like living toward the future yeah right yeah. and and so he'd rather live toward the future than try to discard the past I think that gives us a, a a good headway into the next episode. So now it's funny, you know, we we talked about how Shonen Bat gets defeated in a very non-violent, non-masculine way, and we immediately jump into a big sword fight for the next episode. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. It's, you know, one of the cool things about no entry 
is like that it is such like a quiet constrained episode but now we're just gonna get two back-to-back like 20 minute like ladlefuls of kind of big tent animated action sure i I will say the final episode is sort of you know if we're gonna get all hegel on this we got thesis antithesis and the last episode is synthesis we get the the big action and the the talky bits at the same time right uh yeah, this one we start off in in full on action sequence mode, right? With with Maniwa dressed like a fucking idiot going to war with the as you described kaiju version of of Shonen Bat, right? I guess he's still tiny kaiju. He's we're we're gonna get big kaiju Shonen Bat later, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, the radar man get up b- bad. I honestly like him better when he looks like a crazy homeless guy. As do I. I think he actually looks pretty cool as a crazy homeless guy. Yeah. He's he's already like he's already like bad at being a, an actual like jobless degenerate. He's already like graduated directly to neighborhood eccentric that all the kids kind of think is fun. Mhm. Yeah. Uh it's funny. I think that they the the subtle redesign of Maniwa's character even beyond the the outfit, you know, he's he's gaunt. He's got some some pretty shitty looking facial hair that I think actually looks kind of cool. He's got, you know, the the weird radar glasses that mm-hmm. look awesome. I don't know what they do, but you know, good for him. Yeah. He's wearing his old police uniform under a cape and like <laughs> half tucked in, half not. It it's a mess, but it looks I don't know. There's kind of a swag to it. I like it. Yeah. Where, whereas his, his fantasy outfit is just terrible. <laughs> I, I wonder if that's sort of like, I, I feel like the, the fantasy outfit must be like self-consciously bad yeah. from like a, a show with good character design, I think. And I, I sort of interpret that as like, um, may, maybe a nod to like the, the super Sentai gag at the beginning of perfect blue. I think you're right. Yeah, because it's also clear that it's his self-perception, you know? Right. In one of my favorite moments of the episode, it's funny how both this episode and No uh, no Entry have both the de- detectives being kind of leering weirdos to women. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. Mm. Um, what do we make of that? Well, yes. Maniwa is led by the voice of a, a like car- cartoonishly cartoonish anime lady voice to stare at women's underwear in like a display case. Mm-hmm. Um, and in his reflection, even though we can see that he's dressed in his like crazy hobo outfit in the reflection, he sees himself wearing the like superhero outfit. Right. And, As full radar man. Right. So when we see this like opening sequence of him, you know, leaping from building to building, doing sort of like Dio ending fight stuff with, Mm -hmm. with Shonen Bat. And he has the, you know, the ridiculous leotard and the really doofy looking like chef's hat on. And (laughs) like, we're supposed to understand that this is how he perceives himself. And it's kind of ridiculous, you know? Right. And yet, you know, it's because, it's kind of a weird fight scene. It's like a very conventional fight scene, which makes it weird in the context of the show and that they're like knocking each other through walls of apartment buildings and stuff. Right. And it's kind of hard to tell how much of that we're supposed to think is like happening in the reality of the show. And at this point we should 
if we haven't already com- throw away those distinctions, you know? Right. It's real because it's happening to Maniwa. Because Part- he's bleeding by the end of it, you know? His hand is covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Whether or not he's actually, you know, being thrown through walls is immaterial, you know? I mean, it's a show about one of the conceit is like is like the 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 hard line between reality and imagination blurring mm-hmm. right and so yeah. i think it doesn't really matter what canonically is is happening i mean you do get that great shot in the in the first fight where like shonen bat breaks his sword and he throws it away and when it lands it's a it's an umbrella yeah and it's like yeah it's an umbrella but it is broken mm-hmm. right it did right. break <laughs> something yeah, happened it, to it it's he's not which shouldn't be like a big reveal, right? Because Sh- Shonen Bats bloodied people. Yeah. Like, and put is them now, in the hospital, right? And is now killing them, too. Yeah. Like, I think it's one thing that we didn't bring up in Megahertz is that following Kozuka's death, mm-hmm. from that point on, it seems like Shonen Bat has gone from merely hospitalizing people to flat out murdering them as yeah. his primary mode of action. Mm-hmm. And and you get a lot of like Shonen Bath's destructive physical prowess yeah. in this episode. I, I see this and the next one as sort of much like the ninjutsu sequence in Millennium Actress. I see uh-huh. these as sort of like Khan's little flexes of like, I could do an action movie if I wanted. Like mm-hmm. I, I could direct and storyboard something like that with my team and so yeah. like i think it's just him showing off like i've got the chops you know but it's not as interesting as like some of the other stuff i do right, right? i'm only i'm only going to do it if it is interesting to me right and if i can sort of critique why it would be interesting at all you know right you mentioned with we we did the the theme songs thing so let's mm-hmm. be honest one of one of the big touchstones in this episode because like all con things he's he's loves to make references to influences even if his reference is itself a critique right mm-hmm. which in this case i think it is i think it is um there's a whole lot of batman in this specifically like batman the animated series this has to have been like planned seeing as how he's fighting shonen bat, bat. Yeah, which if it were literally translated would be Bat Boy, mm-hmm. and Shonen Bat's now Kaiju face looks like a fucking bat face. Yes, like a big scary vampire bat. It, but still with the little hat. Very it, uh, lots of layers of like punning here, mm-hmm. woven animal into the punning in particular, which is a, a big thing that this this show does. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, even there's a moment later where Maniwa as Radar Man you know, jumps onto the top of a moving car, classic Batman move. Mm-hmm. And on the car itself, it says bat express. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I saw that too. Thought that was very funny. The title reveal for the episode is, you know, him looming over like on the side of a building with like the neon behind him. And right. It's a detective story and, and you know, Batman world's greatest detective. Mm-hmm. And, well, it, and it specifically visually looks like the 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 animated series from the 90s, right? mm-hmm. the Batman animated series from the 90s, which plays up Batman as a detective more than the films do. Except and for the most than, recent one. The most recent one, I think, is the is most like that. Co- OK, well, we can't. The most recent Batman film, I think, is the closest to the the animated series from the 90s of any of the films I've seen, even though. 
specifically like Tim Burton's Batman film is what allowed them to do the animated series. Right. right. And well, it, it's it's a it's a chain of influence. You know, it's like right. the, the Tim Burton Batman inspires the animated show. The animated right. show, I think, inspires th- the Batman, the most recent movie, which mm-hmm. is also why I think it's my favorite one that I've seen so far. Well, uh, okay, we'll get it. There's okay, we'll get into that another time. Um, <laughs> I've got it. I agree and don't agree. Yes, fair enough. So fair, but it's worth knowing that the Batman animated series was also a huge hit in Japan. I'm not surprised. Had, yeah, mm-hmm, and it had a, had a big noted influence on a lot of anime creators. Uh, there's quotes from a lot of people saying like, "Oh, we saw the Batman animated series from America and thought we needed to step it up." I think the most obvious example of that is if you ever saw Big O. It's it's a mecha show, and basically it is Batman the animated series, but instead of Batman, he has giant robot. Cool, yeah, <laughs> it's cool premise. Not worth discussing much past that, but sure. it like it is a thing that happened. It was a thing, and so mm-hmm. like Cone making these references in this episode would work even if he never thought the show would would get out of Japan, right. And I think in doing so, in having this kind of like fantasy versus reality critique of Batman uh, ends up kind of making a lot of the same arguments as Alan Moore's Watchmen. Right. Um, And I think actually in a more effective way, because no one thinks that Radar Man is cool, but people do think Rorschach is cool, you know? Right. Rorschach is too toyetic. Yeah. Radar Man is is ridiculous. A, would be a bad like action figure mm-hmm. which they sort of underline in the sequence where like one of the big horror reveals is he finds a bunch of action figures of other characters from the show yeah yeah we can talk spooky. about that uh, <laughs> spooky so like I, I you know it's it's a subtle point it's not as hammered home as Watchmen does that like oh Batman would actually be like a creepy reactionary weirdo because we are supposed to empathize with Maniwa in a lot of ways, as we've talked about Maniwa being the paranoia agent is our audience surrogate. Mm-hmm. He's, he's us trying to crack the code. He's us slowly losing our mind and being driven kind of nuts by the loopy cyclical dream interpretive logic of the Shonen Bat case and the show itself. And it's, I, I don't think it's surprising then that like, he's led to another kind of audience surrogate, the bad fan surrogate. We, yeah. we return to the, the site of the otaku workstation, the, you know, who Maniwa has knocked on this door before way back in episode one mm-hmm. and now returns in a really bizarre sequence. <laughs> yeah. This is, this sequence is out of pocket. I, I like it is it is weird that it exists. It's weird that it exists in this show at at this time. Mm-hmm. This this feels like like it would be in Steins Gate, not this show. But like it, it, it's got echoes to the past, echoes to the future. You know, we've already seen he's led there by like bunny woman bouncing in the reflections. That's going to show up later in Paprika. But it's yep. also like it's it's a thing from Perfect Blue. And totally. This, yeah. Yeah. And this sequence does have Mr. Mimania energy to an right. to an extent, you know, a, a, a probably mentally disturbed character. In this case, both Maniwa and the otaku like being sort of coached by like a possibly imaginary idol woman, right? In mm-hmm. this case, a, a team of them. 
and they operate with like cyber gear from Ghost in the Shell. It, it's yeah, pretty let's, cool, actually. Let's, but. let's talk about the figurines and what they tell us because this whole sequence struck me as another example of like an entire movie's worth of ideas condensed into a single scene. Right. You know, mm-hmm. the, the bunny figurine who I think she's literally called bunny Chan at one point mm-hmm. mentions that she could also hear the voices of people crying for escape the way that Shonen bat can. And that presumably therefore, uh, Maromi can as well, or it, the metaphysics are weird here and suggests that all of the, the figurines are both actually alive in a way that the otaku is not. And yet they were limited by their subservience to the otaku. Like they couldn't do anything about, you know, people crying out for help. Right. Because they were stuck in this figurine world serving a character that they openly refer to as a doll. That man is just a doll. That man is just a doll. Don't, don't pay attention to him. It's the reverse of, it's the reverse of the wizard of Oz, right? It's like the the man behind the curtain is actually, he's the illusion. I, the illusion and the real thing. So actually I'm, I'm real quick. I'm really glad you brought up wizard of Oz because Ikari in the last episode in, in no entry repeats to himself multiple times. There's no place like home. Mm-hmm. as he's being led into his version of Oz, you know? Correct. And also there is the visual motif of, okay, so we should, okay, let's, we'll get back to the otaku, I promise, but you've brought up something interesting here. Both, both characters follow, I know this isn't Oz, but this is still uh, in, in a similar sort of like old fantasy for young kids entering parallel universe vein. Uh-huh. Both characters follow a, a rabbit into into this weird sort of like parallel pocket universe. Right. So yeah, right? Monty was being led by a rabbit and is instructed to to follow right. a rabbit. And in in Ikari's 2D world, you see specifically in the moon an image of a rabbit. Mm-hmm. And so I had to look this up. You this may not be like totally apparent to all listeners, but it's an image of a rabbit and what it's doing is it's making mochi. Mm-hmm. The rabbit making mochi on the moon is the man in the moon of Japanese folklore. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Right? It's, it's, you know, some people say, oh, the moon is made of cheese. Oh, there's a man in the moon. In Japan, it's there's a rabbit making mochi on the moon. You can see the image of it. Mm-hmm. The word for rabbit is usagi. Sagi. Sagi. Yeah. So, Tsukiko Mo- Sagi. Tsukiko Sagi. Right. Right. It's the and and there is also an aspect in Japanese folklore that the moon governs illusions. The, the moon is is the mirror world. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. you can see the moon. If you can see like there's some like aphorism where it's like if you can perfectly see the moon and perfectly see the moon reflected in a still pond. Could you tell the difference? It's not like that with the sun. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that the moon is duplicitous. Right. Right. And we get another and, moment later in this episode of Tsukigo being uh, Tsukiko being linked to the moon by mm-hmm. uh, her manager, uh, Hatomura, you know, at one point later in the episode says, like, you think you're the sun. No, 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 no. Actually, you're just the moon. You're just exactly. reflecting the light of Maromi. 
which I think gets us back to the idea of the uh, the otaku being just a doll, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's the he's the reflection of of like the actual magic is in is in the characters, right? Not in right? The, the creator is just a reflection of the created thing. Rather, mm-hmm. the doll maker is a doll. The creator is the moon. You know, right? The creation lives. The creator is just a reflection of it. Right. Really interesting for someone with such a strong authorial hand like Khan to be like exploring these ideas. Mm-hmm. He does deliver like that savage critique of otaku, but one one can't help but think that maybe he's also leveling that critique a little bit at himself. Of course, yeah, because like the otaku is not a, a passive otaku. He is the creator of the figurines, you know? And we get this mm-hmm. really ominous moment where he's in fact creating figurines of all of the victims of right. Shonen Bat that we've seen in the show thus far. Mm-hmm. including like the creators of the mellow Maromi TV show. Uh, those are the, in fact, the first ones that we see as it scans over. Right. And that again, feels like, wow, this would have, this is feels like such a late nineties, early two thousands thriller mind fuck kind of De- visual motif that he just tucks away into the penultimate episode of his TV show. <laughs> Real dorm poster energy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which which I love. I it's 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 bad, but I chase it like a I chase it like a high. Yeah, uh, I need it. And so I I do like the otaku sequence in this episode, like kind of a lot. At the same time, there are some uh, some finely animated nipples on these dolls that really give me the heebie-jeebies. The dolls give you the heebie-jeebies, but not the entire second half of End of Evangelion. <laughs> Uh, I feel like we we've litigated that that subject enough, but I, I'll take the punch and keep it rolling. <laughs> well, I'm just the different that I was trying to give you layup. The uh, difference is the end of Evangelion does kind of want you to feel uncomfortable. Yes, yeah. Whereas, like, I'm not sure that's quite the point here. I mean, well, why not? Yeah, I, I I think we are supposed to look at the otaku character with a bit of disdain, and right. so seeing these as the product of his labor is maybe like tells us something about his priorities, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. And it's funny. Cause like on a certain, on like a plot level, this is actually like kind of lazy in that, you know, Monty mm-hmm. goes to the old man is like, I don't know what to do. I can't beat this guy. I know that he's linked to Maromi because of this conversation I just had with Misae, but I don't know what to do to fight him. My power isn't enough. And the old man says, you know, follow the white rabbit basically. So, we also get a bit of the matrix. We get a bit of Alice in Wonderland, et cetera, et cetera. He goes there and then they they just cook up the answer to the mystery for him. Cause we have the weird, you know, ghost in the shell schoolgirl character who I guess from her like weird, uh, loadout sequence screen that we get overlaid on the show. Right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of info in, in that we get the, uh, otaku mouseu, uh, let me let me pull it up because it's it, it made me lull to pause and actually like read all this stuff out. Uh, Otaku.mausu.para is like the name of the website that she's using. Oh um, and there's like the Mega Neko, uh, but with CCO instead of the the KKO, which is how you would normally spell it, which is basically like the like girl with glasses who is cute because she has glasses archetype is the Mega Neko. Oh, stuff. so instead they sort of like corporatize it and make it look like, you know, that's a, funny. Yeah, it's 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 pretty funny. 
It's, it's very funny. Okay. I, I didn't stop to read all that, but I, I could tell that there were gags going on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for explaining that gag. I th- so I guess we're, we should assume that that character is Mouse. Yeah. Otaku Mousu. Mouse. Yeah. And a mouse is something connected to a computer. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Smart. Mousy. That's usually like the adjective used to describe like geek chic. You know, mm-hmm. and there's a moment where she's, you know, once she's plugged into to Maniwa's goggles and is like using his like detective resources, which are, you know, again, sort of hand waved. But she's like, you know, fans would kill for this, <laughs> for this access to information and the ability to look stuff up, which I think is kind of a shot at like us as viewers to sure. be like, oh, you would love to just have instant access to the mainframe to be able to look up the answer to the mystery the minute. You know, at at first opportunity, sure. And and here we're going to deliver the sort of you know the Deus Ex Machina, the the ghost Lit- in the shell, <laughs> almost literally. The right, it's a reference to Ghost in the Shell, but also it is like the narrative trope of a Deus Ex Machina. Funny, okay, right? I get. We're operating on a multi. There's a lot going on in Radar Man. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons why, even though it's got this lazy detective beat, I actually think it's one of the better episodes. Yeah. They 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 over they paint over the sort of laziness of the delivering of that information by making the sequence weird as hell and loaded with a ton of stuff to dig into. So right. Cake and eat it too. Thank you, Satoshi. I I'll take it. I'll eat it. And then, but if we're, so if we're sort of following, if the a plot is Mani was detective story, mm-hmm. we, we follow, you know, the otaku sequence directly to something super grounded, which is him meeting, Sagi Tsukiko's dad. Yes. Who is not named in. I don't believe so. Maybe in the credits. Uh, but we, we do get, we only get him for like one scene, but we learn a lot about him in a way that uh, very strongly sets up the ending uh, right. and should retroactively make us consider some of the other stuff that we've seen so far. Right. Uh, so before we even see his face, we see that he's a smoker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we get a shot, the insert shot of the cigarettes that uh, Mr. Soggy smokes. They're mild sevens. And then we see his face. And as he is describing being too hard on Tsukiko as a child and being a very like sort of stern and uh, disciplinarian father. And he's dressed, you know, very old school. He's you know in robes with the sandals. Uh, right you know, makes a, an interesting pair sitting next to, to Maniwa, in to Maniwa, his, you know, bizarre outfit has serious, sad dad energy. Yeah. Yes. A lot of, a lot of regret going on mm-hmm. in, in this man, you, you just get this sense. And it is sort of in him telling the story about Sagi's original encounter with the original Shonen bat, whatever quote unquote. um you do, you do sort of he doesn't quite outline as i recall the nature of that exchange it's it's pretty vague but it's sort of left to where you could maybe start putting together the dots because mm-hmm. maniwa you know maniwa while sort of standing in the streets of tokyo before he goes to the otaku's house looks up and sees on television sukiko having a television interview where it's revealed that Maromi, the character, was based off of Tsukiko's childhood dog. Mm-hmm. When Maniwa goes to visit the Soggy household, there is a abandoned dog house. There is reference to something terrible having happened, and there mm-hmm. is a baseball bat. 
Right. The baseball bat that will become the the sword that knows the truth. Right. <laughs> As it's put. Right. Yeah. Manny was galaxy brain instrument. And you do get that fun shot where he grabs it and it, it becomes the sword. Yeah. Right. Even though I think the sword design's goofy as hell. But again, yeah. it's Manny was self-perception of the sword and his like, you know, particular JRPG fantasy that he's slipping in and out of. And we see the sort of line between those things blurred because there's a moment where he's holding the baseball bat as the sword, but appears as the real life homeless man right. instead of the fantasy version. Right. It's an interesting scene. It's super downplayed, but it is sort of like, like it's one of those blink and you'll miss it, but it also like explains the whole ending. Yeah. Like it's, it's an important lore scene and it's what 20 seconds long <laughs> and it's not only just an important lore scene but i think it is also kind of like the skeleton key to tsukiko's character and let's just say it ikari's character right yep. well i mean at this point in time i'd like to p- pull back and and bring out a couple more nuggets from what i learned in the production Go for because it. Because I, I think this is a good place to to bring them out. We know that very little was was changed from Khan's original outline into the um from his outline in going to a script. But we do know one thing that was removed. And one thing that was removed is originally he he thought of having a soggy Ikari romantic relationship. Um, I'm I'm glad he didn't go with that, but I see w- you know, that would be even more Ava in its own way. Right. <laughs> if you really want to make weird, grim, dark father daughter things going on, um, and, and maybe it would be too much to have that and Hirokawa in, yeah. in the same series. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely do get the sense that, like, if Ava's a show about, like, weird, weird, like, son dad problems, then, like, Paranoid Agent is a series about father-daughter problem very specifically in this final trio of episodes it's about that it's about that correct and we can talk in the next episode whether it completely succeeds sure but this this episode is laying the groundwork for that let's talk Mm -hmm. about sukiko a bit because she's well this is the thing i wanted to bring up this is the other thing i'm sorry i was getting ahead of myself i guess sukiko was the hardest character for them to crack when they were writing the show Mm -hmm. and their solution was to just not crack her like yeah at a point at a point in time they just sort of said the audience won't get her so let's just make a character you can't really get to the point where they modeled like her dialogue and her physicality off of bjork (laughs) i i'm thinking specifically of like don't let poets lie to you era bjork not so much like right. fighting Not, journalists at the airport, Bjork. Sure. <laughs> who I think we understand a bit more. Sure. N- Not in like arch costume, you know, I am an Icelandic witch, Bjork. Right. But I, yeah. we're, we're talking about like, we're talking about like early, it's the 90s. Oh, I'm this like kind of eccentric gal with a crazy voice. <laughs> right. Work with the trip hop dude, mm-hmm. Bjork. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and, and it's true that I think you, you, Soggy is pretty impenetrable, but you here you finally start to get like a grasp of honor. Yeah. And it's through returning actually to her characterization from in the very first episode. Mm-hmm. I think this trio and this episode in the finale in particular are, are kind of finally circling back to the, the basics of what this show is about. 
the central right. trio of characters being Maniwa, Ikari, and Tsukiko. They mm-hmm. are the wheel that this thing turns on. So let's talk about Tsukiko, because she's also briefly in no entry, but I think it's 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 better to talk about how why she's in no entry in this episode. Right. Because it, she's at the beginning of no entry where she's on a talk show talking about Maromi mm-hmm. uh, and is sort of dressed down, dressed as we've normally seen her. We see her on the way to an, what seems like another media appearance near the end of no entry. And we have this interesting interaction between a very humbled Ikari and Tsukiko as sort of a rising celebrity, mm-hmm. which then is sort of paid off in, uh, in radar man where Mani was reduced to this like homeless man watching on a, a public TV screen while Tsukiko is, you know, dressed up in, as, as you described it in your notes, like daytime TV chic. And as the, we, the glow up is real. It, like, yeah. I, I don't, it, I don't mean to like, girl, I, like, I realize that you are tremendously mentally ill, but your stylist <laughs> did a wonderful job. Especially compared to the woman who's interviewing her, who is, looks like she just like, barreled through a closet and came out the other side <laughs> does she is she picking up all the clothes that Harumi throws away yeah <laughs> it is a it is a, a fashion disaster in a way that only the two mid-2000s can offer you know <laughs> now that is a fact but i think it's crucial like we get these interactions of like the detectives who were in the position of power at the beginning of the show are mm-hmm. now humbled are now brought mm-hmm. low, and instead we see Tsukiko in the position of power mm-hmm. uh, as the the media figure, as the creator of this wildly popular piece of IP. But not all is well because we still return to basics here. We return to the first episode where her managers are breathing down her neck to come up with a sequel, and her coworkers are gossiping behind her back. Right before they get crushed by a giant bat. <laughs> Um, but, but after they may like physically assault her. Yeah. Do you, do we want to not delivering another character? Well, well, there's a, a, a peak cone moment in that daytime TV interview where one, we see it shot so that we see the people filming them while they're having the conversation. Very millennium Mm -hmm. actress, very perfect blue. Mm -hmm. And then when they go to a break of the news segment, we have like three things happening at once, which is that. Hatomura gets a phone call from his higher up right when it cuts to the the news segment about more shonen bat attacks. So the the illusion of success and the illusion of the sort of escape that Moromi offers is punctured on both sides. Where right. Tsukiko's success is is still at risk of being taken away at any moment by the need to come up with a follow-up. And Moromi's escape is, is punctured by the brutality and violence of Shonen Bat. At the, like, or, or completed by it, because while Shonen Bat's getting more violent, like Moromi's, like clearly like Moromi's reaching cultural saturation mm-hmm. at a fever pitch right. in, in this episode. And uh, yeah, maybe to look at the, the other thing is not a puncturing, but a completion is that your success as a media figure only creates the demand for more success. You know, mm-hmm. they will bleed you dry, which makes me wonder, like, what are they like? 
just from an industry standpoint, it seems like they're like not managing Maromi's IP very well. God, I sound like a fucking shill even talking about this. Like, <laughs> if you're you're already breathing down her neck for the next one. I'm like, mm, you just got like Mayday per- Parade floats. Like Carl Schultz didn't do like more. You didn't need characters after fucking Peanuts. You had Snoopy and you just do Snoopy forever. Like, right. you're, I, I don't know why you're doing this. Well, I mean, if we can read perhaps some degree of like capitalist critique here, it's the it's the endless churn for, for more and more and more and more and more at the expense of the people who are making the art, right? Like we return right. to the Mellow sure. Maromi critique of like, this industry does kind of just grind you into dust. And it's, and it's hard to, I forget, as we're recording this, I haven't listened to any rough drafts of the beginning of our paranoia episode, but I I forget if we if I talked about this earlier, but maybe it's worth saying again. It's hard for me not to interpret like Soggy's friction to deliver another hit as like kind of con talking about him trying to follow up perfect blue. Totally. Yeah. I've never seen anyone like say that. I don't think he ever like said that. Right. But I like it seems it seems so like pointed that like I, I I think this has to be like at least informed by that situation, right? I agree. I think whether or not it's intentional as fans, it's hard for us to not see it that way. Which mm-hmm. you know, as far as the show is concerned, that means it's as true as anything else. You know, because right. like the fan narrative is what is driving uh, Shonen Bat to become increasingly more horrific, and it's the fan narrative that is, you know, we get again this like montage of of news about Maromi like we in the same way in that in the first episode we have that montage of people talking about Shonen Bat we now see that same monomania Maromi mania playing out in the streets across television as presumably Maniwa is flipping through the channels sure sure I mean and it it seems probably like uh, a facile thing to say right but if like Shonen Bat is Maromi's shadow Right. The bigger Maromi gets, the bigger the shadow gets. And vice versa, you know, in some right. ways it's like the shadow has been growing this entire time and now we see what is standing and casting that shadow. Like the worse right. the the series of horrific murders on the street gets, the more people are going to run into the arms of something as soft and nostalgic and comforting as Maromi. Mhm. Mhm. Maromi is is the mochi that Sagi's making. Precisely. Right? Yes. That's what she is. She's just a a worker. Yeah. Making a sweet treat. Mhm. Right? That's that's going to rot your teeth. Makes makes a lot of sense. I like so That said, I you know, you do get a lot of there's some interesting Maromi as character stuff in this episode. Very true. Yeah. There's some it, there's some like weird little there's some turns that I, I think are a little like I'm not certain all the sense they make. Like Maromi has kind of like an adversarial relationship with Shonen Bat. Like in the in the horror sequence where Shonen Bat is chasing Soggy down the stairs and and like battering down doors and you get like cool you know, horror movie, like tung, 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 the, the metal bending in, right. Mm-hmm. Maromi's trying to protect Soggy. He's trying to lock the door. And like on a metaphorical level, that makes sense. But it's like, if these two characters are in some way like united, it's weird that they have this oppositional relationship in some ways. Right. right. I'm, I'm hearing in the distance, a uh, former guest Langdon Hickman banging on his copy of uh, the collected Hegel that he keeps on his desk. Cause like, of course these things are in a dialectical relationship to each other. You know, exactly right. 
Which is why it's sort of interesting to me that at the end, Maromi like sort of opens the the doorway to the parallel dimension yeah. and decides to remove himself. Himself. Herself. Himself. Yeah. Decides to remove himself from from reality. The, the situation gets so dire that that's the only way out, you know? Right. And, which, that, that's <laughs> the tagline for every character's plot arc of course, over the course of the entire show, but... Yeah, we we get, you know, so first Maromi prevents Tsukiko from hearing Maniwa's accusation of the truth. Right. He's like, you're, you're, it's, you're responsible for this. And he cuts the cord, you know, he's got his little angry eyes and then mm-hmm. Shonen Bat shows up because to confront the truth would be to confront Shonen Bat himself. Right. Uh, we get this sort of hilarious, but sad in its own way moment of Maromi leaping on the doorknob and then getting like comically thrown off of it. Right. Uh, like even, even Maromi, you cannot paper over it, you know? No, nope. you cannot paper over it. You cannot like just put it in the trash and hope that it goes away. It like Shonen Bat will bust down the door, even if Maromi is guarding the door. Sure. Which is, which is interesting because Shonen Bats also come to to her defense in this episode like in in a different in a different way right like yeah shonen bat destroys the car with um hatamura hatamura in it right it's actually quite quite comic right like she turns away you hear the crunch and you turn and there's like the car in shonen bat looking like the monkey from the rampage poster (laughs) (laughs) right yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of like you can't, it's also like the power of a creator, right? You can't wield like the oppressive force of of something you've made mm-hmm. without like reaping what comes from that. Yes. I think is, is, what he's, is what he's talking about. And maybe that ties into this thing with with the otaku and, and the dolls, right? Is I think there's also this Ooh. element of talking about like the thing you, you make can unmake you. Yeah, yeah. You are eventually subservient to the things that you put out in the world, not the other mm-hmm. way around. That's why, that's why your career is not anime director, just director of Perfect Blue. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Home run. Nice job. Uh, let's talk about that Hatomura scene. Sure. Because this is another case where I, I'd be interested to hear your take on it. Because I think Hatomura is definitely coded as gay, right? Yes. Um, throughout the show. And... There's this kind of sing-songy lilt to the way that he talks that is dropped very suddenly when he sort of snaps at Tsukiko and like grabs her face in the car and has this like really violent, abusive like interaction with her. And then once she gets out of the car, suddenly he returns to the the previous way that he was speaking. Mm -hmm. What do we make of that? This is this is a uh, these episodes in particular. I think I, I think do have like something to say about masculinity, right? We were talking about like the the comic nature of like Shonen Bat being puffed up and his bat staying the same size, right? You know, we've talked about like Hirokawa's delusions about a man's path, mm-hmm. that the weird conservativeness of like Ikari's interpretation of society, right? right? These are all tied up in and Mani was Batman fantasies also. A, right. a type of, you know, a, a nerdier type of masculinity, but masculinity nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I, I think th- that you can read this show to an extent as a toxic masculinity critique. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, man, this is this is like one of those. It's still kind of like a hard charged thing to to say, but I think people are saying it more. I I think there is something Im- implicit about like Im- not like rejecting homosexuality as an aspect of the human experience, right? Mm-hmm. Implicit is in that is like a homosexual man is not like separated from toxic masculinity. Right. Right. And so I, I don't know if I've ever seen another anime address that. Maybe I should read more or watch more like yoy stuff. Maybe there's something like that in there. But I, I don't know. You still don't see a lot of that in film. And so I guess that's sort of like my my tack on this scene. Um, the only thing I can relate it to is. You know, my family watches reality TV, mm-hmm. my little sister and my mom do. And so I don't I don't even know what show they were watching. Something on Bravo. I think it was one of those realtor flip shows. But I do remember one time I was visiting home and I sort of like walked out and they were like watching the TV. And I recall this specifically there being um, a reality TV sequence where one out gay character speaking in, in a coded gay way does turn to another character drops the accent and says like in a very straightforward way just because i'm gay doesn't mean i won't kick your ass yeah mm-hmm. and i'm like i i, I recall that because i'm like whoa i never see that <laughs> uh so reality tv and paranoia agent the only two places where like the illusions giving you that weird critique of reality yeah so i think what i what i make of it is that both the way that Hadomura carries himself generally and the threatening, you know, more overtly masculine version of him that we see in that moment. Neither of them are the quote unquote real version of him. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Both Both. of them, both of them are types of performances that Mm -hmm. like, you know, we all perform on some level, the version of ourselves that we want other people to see us as. And I think he is playing both. You can see that he's playing both roles, you know, and mm-hmm. which makes it an interesting thing that he's, he's talking about how like Sukiko is a deceiver, a, a character based in deception. Like, and we see in this moment that he is perhaps deceiving himself about who he is like, right. And that these two sides of himself are to some degree ir- irreconcilable, which is why he gets attacked by Shonen Bat immediately afterwards. Right. It's 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 not a mask off moment. No, it's him changing masks. Yes. And that's sort of and that's sort of the the that is the thing that is unconscionable to Shonen Bat and Maromi. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, you think back to Har- Harumi and and um, Maria, Maria. Yeah. Right. It, it's the the weird part is is when they Shonen Bat doesn't attack when when their characters are in conflict. Shonen bad attacks when they start like fusing yeah. at random right. at the end, right? Like what's unconscionable is the idea that both facades could be genuine. Right. Because that, that creates the unresolved tension within the person that leads them to believe that there is no way out, you know? Mm. That there is no exit. Yeah. No entry. I don't know. And then we get this, you know, very bleak funeral sequence where, you know, Hadomura's <laughs> In the coffin, surrounded by Maromi dolls. Right. It's just like, yikes. And then we see, you know, we have the this, the overlaid dialogue of Tsukiko's co-workers gossiping about her yet again. And we realize, like, her creation of Shonen Bat has led her exactly back to where we started. 
Yep. Unable to come up with a new character, even though in some ways she did come up with Shonen Bat as a new character. Um, Shonen Bat isn't even a new character. Right. It's as we see in her, you know, old sketchbook. It's a very, very old character. So in some ways she's been struggling to come up with new characters her entire life. <laughs> right. And, you know, and her coworkers hate her. And then we get this like literal return of her in the same office, repeating the same shots of her at her computer with, you know, Moromi looking down over her. I think that's a really conscious choice to, to show that like, in some ways nothing has changed, but everything is worse. You right. Know? The escape into victimhood failed. Yeah. All, all For, it has does it has done is exacerbate the, the fundamental problem. You know, it just keeps building up and building up. Right. And, and maybe that's why it makes sense that her, her, the next iteration of that is, is not being attacked again. It's like escaping an attack into a world where it's all her creation and taking Maromi with her. Right. So it's, right. it's not only that she wants to escape a world where Maromi exists. She doesn't want anyone else to have the world where Maromi has existed. Right. Yeah. But that's more taking out the trash. Right. That's more time. Right. You can't you can't take the past out. The past continues. So even when she sucks all the images of Maromi into the 2D world with her. Maromi still exists. And without an image, what's left is the amorphous black mass. Right. Of of Shonen Bat. Yeah. So the, the the metaphysics get pretty funky here. Right. Um, we see, you know, Ikari wandering around his 2D world where he gets to chase after criminals and, you know, everything looks like the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And we see him wandering through like a replication of his high school, like literally. Or, yeah. Where there's some other, uh, you know, teenage girl, uh, Tomome, who's never shown on screen, is like talking about having a crush on him. So he's now in this world that is like, much like, you know, a, a different Ikari's imaginary world is built to please him, you know? Right. We we have yes. a, 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 a different kind of like high school, cutesy, romantic, nostalgic version for an Ikari to escape into. It just so happens that this one is also nostalgic for a different era in history. And Moromi in the real world creates a door out of nothing and leads Tsukiko down, 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 down into like a sub basically like leading into a subconscious leading into some sort of imaginary zone, the same shared nostalgic delusion. Right. And so it's basically suggesting that Tsukiko's escape and Ikari's escape can overlap. Right. In some way. But crucially, Shonen Bat maybe, you know, he vanishes in that moment too, in his like corporeal form. What, what, let me scroll back a bit. Because there's this big, there's a second fight scene between Maniwa and Shonen Bat. Where right. Maniwa now armed with the sword of truth, you know, strikes what appears to be a killing blow. Right. But and you get the cool body horror dissolve of it comes back together. Right. right? It's very... I think the end of this series is very Evangelion mm -hmm. and that is like, a, that is like a very Ava body horror moment. Yeah. Right. So the idea that like the truth can't, the truth won't set him free. Yeah. And also understanding the, even understanding Tsukiko's delusion 
and deception is not sufficient to kill Shonen Bat anymore because he no longer belongs just to Tsukiko. Right. He belongs to everyone. Right. Or, I mean, that's one interpretation. My interpretation was that, like, it, it's not enough that he knows the truth. She has to. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's very true. Right. That's a better way and, of putting it. Right, and that's why he needs... That's why if she's going to be redeemed, she's going to be redeemed by another person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, he needs, like he needs to give the truth to her. Yeah. I love that when Shonen Bat vanishes, Maniwa does not celebrate. Right. He does not see this as a victory. He is lost and cries out, you know, like, where did he go? Because now his whole identity, his whole internal monologue that we see at the beginning of the episode is tied up in Shonen Bat. Right. This is his entire meaning in life now is, is combating Shonen Bat. And so just as the rest of the world despairs at the sudden vanishing of Maromi, he, va- he despairs at the sudden vanishing of Shonen Bat. Right. He, he is in a sense like Shonen Bat's shadow now, the copy mm-hmm. of a copy. Radar Man is a copy of Batman. It, right. Yeah, that all, that all makes sense. He's losing, he loses definition too. Yes, uh, did you notice that Maniwa is also wearing a baseball hat? I, you, I did not notice, but I saw in your notes that you pointed it out. It is, it is as you correctly noted, upward turned, like he's going to go to a thrash show. Yes. <laughs> a thrash show circa 2009. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could see him getting ready to stage dive. <laughs> I think that there's a certain degree to which he is putting on the mantle of Kozuka, you know, He's, right. he, he's becoming the Fox. He's becoming like Shonen Bat. The more that he attempts to battle him, you know, do not stare into the abyss, lest the abyss stare back into you, yada, 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 that kind of stuff. He's, his identity is, as you said, wrapped up in, in Shonen Bat, you know? Like, right. I also think it's interesting to know, I don't know if we talked about this before, but because we spent a lot of time looking at Shonen Bat's face in these, in uh, no entry, we see that he's wearing a smiley face pin, mm-hmm. a peace sign pin, and also what appears to be like a nuclear radiation pin. Right. So it, it sort of like empty social movements. Right. Um, or or f- social movements that fit. I don't want to like, I don't want to denigrate the peace nicks too much, but fuck the hippies. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's all stuff that to me strikes it's like the P, the peace sign, and I don't quite know what to make of the, the nuclear sign. Uh, I think that that's kind of just like a bit of empty symbolism uh, in this particular show, although maybe retroactively, I'm getting ahead of myself. The the peace sign and the, the smiley face are both like 60s iconography, you know? Right. And he is the ultimate representation of like the youth gone wrong. And it, Which the sixties were the decade of that and Akari threatening the fifties. Right. Yep. Yeah. You see where I'm yep. going. Yep. Yep. I did not put that together, but I, I did always, I, I sort of interpreted the smiley face as, as you said, I was like, Oh, I think it, I think it's a watchman nod And it. I think it also works as that too. You know, in this, yeah. in this episode in particular, it feels like you, you can make that resonance there. Cause I think watchman is also making that own kind of resonance, you know? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so i we will get into it in the next episode and i think we've kind of i've sort of run out of things to say here oh actually that's not entirely right but what do we make of tsukiko 
ending up in the same fantasy world as Ikari. Well, I, I think that I think that threads a little troublesome. Maybe it's going to be easier to talk about that in the next episode. Yeah, but like, I do think it is sort of strange that that she's going into the same world that Ikari is, and I think, well going to make more sense in the next episode yeah. it has something to do with childhood mm-hmm. with fathers yep with a, a more innocent time right some would say a more romantic time right that word romantic is going to be important so yeah but it, it, i mean the more obvious thing is of course that she's a creative character she's an illustrator right it's a world of illustrations what's she gonna do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. make illustrations And finally, I think it's crucial that when Maromi vanishes, Shonen Bat vanishes, we get this quick montage of an insinuation that the effects of Shonen Bat on the previous character, the previous main characters of the show has also been reversed. Right. So we have Harumi's fiance, who we saw earlier, you know, has has this big Maromi pillow right and maria walks into the frame not harumi love that shot um we see ichi open his locker and the palm tree Mm -hmm. is there so once again someone is bullying him right and then we have can't escape your past uh the the journalist character from episode one uh mr Kawazu. kawazu receives a phone call from the family of the old man who died earlier in this episode insinuating the ancient that master the ancient master he is once again being sued by that family uh-huh so all all of the work that shonen bat has done to paper over all of the the trauma and the the negative parts of life or the parts of life that we seek to ignore has been undone the escape is gone right and that leads us uh into the next episode along with a another very Lynchian sequence of uh, Misai getting ready for the operation going under and being confronted by the ancient master now done up he's as a bellboy bellboy, but like a big bellboy. Uh, yeah. He's big boy, but he's big like the toads in the live action Mario movie or weird reference, but he, or like the giant in twin peaks, right? Asking where would you like to go in a mm-hmm. elongated, in, a, in an elevator that is shot and with enough angles on the top of it to make it look like they are standing inside of a giant coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, I want to go to where Ikari is. And he says, absolutely. Interesting that she, who was just in an episode that is a direct reflection of a play about hell descending into what we know to be an underworld. Right. Yes. Very, uh, very Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. Right here with a thousand faces. This is the this is the descent into darkness, the dark night of the soul. Right. Also, we, this is the same episode that we have a, a man seeking a, a mystical sword, which also feels very Joseph Campbell. So yeah, there's definitely like I think one of the overarching themes of of these last two episodes, especially, is like while I, while I love Paranoia Agent now, I think it does sometimes kind of like want for a plot, mm-hmm. like the the meld between like arc and anthology is a little imperfect and so like part of the project of these last two episodes is let's bring 
like the hero's journey back into it after we sort of like abandoned it for long stretches of time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the mythic arc of paranoia agent is this the final mm-hmm. trio of episodes is sort of how I've been thinking it to myself. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it's a show about urban legends mm-hmm. as much as, as much as anything else. Right. Shonen bad is bat boy, an urban legend. Right. Right. This is a mythology that takes place in modern time, which means now I guess we're going to go to Ragnarok. Uh, the, the, the end of the show, the, the final episode, certainly the end of many things. Uh, yeah. Until then, sweet dreams. Howdy, human instrumentalitiers. Joseph again. This week, the Human Instrumentality Podcast would like to thank our bridge crew, Jonathan Case, Josh Oakley, Four Peoples, and our newest addition, Ash. Good to see you here, friend. If you want to join the bridge crew for $5 a month, join us at patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at another Ava pod and on Instagram at human instrumentality pod. Thanks again for joining us on this bizarre adventure. And as always, congratulations for making it through one more impact. We'll see you soon.